October 31st is Halloween, yes. Um, but also, 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed what's been known now as the 95 Theses to the doors of the Wittenberg Church. And that caused a firestorm in Europe and has gone around the world. Um, it's called, it's known as the Protestant Reformation. It changed a lot in Christianity, and we're concerned with is that a good thing? Was it a bad thing? What were people reacting to? So, what we're going to do is we're going to take um, five weeks starting tonight to look at the church as it was, as it is, and as it should be. We're going to learn from the mistakes of the church. We're going to learn from the successes of the church and meet a couple of important people along the way, people to emulate, people not to emulate. Um, So before we launch into it, just a disclaimer, um, I'm going to do my best to make this. The goal is so that we can pass down a Christianity. First of all, we can understand where we come from. You're not just a blip on the radar in this year 2017 disconnected. We have 2,000 years of family and tradition. So where do we come from? Um, But we want to know what kind of faith are we going to keep on living, sharing, evangelizing, and passing down to our children or your grandchildren to the next generation. So um, disclaimer is that I am not an expert on church history. But I do know 99% more than 99% more of you. Um, and again, I'm not an expert, but I have been doing some study in the last two years trying to learn my history. Where do I come from? Why do I believe the things I believe? How did that develop? So um, I just know enough that I feel like I can share something for our benefit. All right? So that's where we're at. All right. So let's pray. God of Israel, God of the church, God of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, God of every era and epoch of history, God of the future, past and present, we are here in this small moment of time as part of a very large family that's gone on ahead of us and some more to come on after us. Lord, who is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you should visit him. When we look at the stars, and we consider the galaxies, and we consider how vast this universe is, and how breathtakingly small this little planet is, we marvel that you should even consider humans worth your time. You should consider humans something worth your becoming to come live with and show us the way. That you would consider humans worth giving a path and that for 2,000 years you haven't abandoned these humans and that you keep on bringing more into your people and you're unfolding it into something. Jesus, we're excited to see what your body becomes in the years to come. And we thank you for calling us. We pray you would call many more. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at a little bit of Mark chapter 4. Tonight, part 1, we look at AD 100 to AD 300. 
These are the earliest years of the church. Now, you may have noticed we're skipping 30 to 100. That's because it's in your Bibles. Um, we study that year-round. And by the year 100, we skip the last of the actual 12 disciples of Jesus have died off. And so we're, we're going to jump in where the church continues that tradition. The next generation of Christians and how they pass it down. And I'm going to warn you. Um, I've been utterly, my mind has been blown as I study this era of the church. Um, we think we know things, but we don't. And the documentation that's there, it's amazing. So you might be challenged. That's okay. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at history. Um, but I do ultimately hope that we can see a God who's calling us into a certain way of life. So with that, if you guys are in Mark 4, um, I'm going to start you guys off with a story. We're going to jump 2,000 years in the past. I'm going to give you a scene, a picture, and then we'll unfold from there. So we're in the Roman Empire. It's May 7, 203 AD. May 7, 203 AD. And the African city of Carthage is wanting to get points with the Roman emperor. So they do what a lot of cities do when they want the emperor's attention. They throw a grand event in the emperor's honor. This time for the emperor's son's birthday. This is a holiday. When the emperor has a birthday, it's a holiday. When his son has a birthday, it's a holiday. Think New Year's Eve, Thanksgiving. This is a Roman Empire holiday, and Carthage is not going to skimp on celebration. So, Carthage plans games in their arena. Now, games in this time of history were not simple javelin throws or football or hockey or contests of strength. These were the kinds of games that often ended in lots of bloodshed. People died in these games. And this was going to be no exception. So the rich of the city step up to get honor and glory from the citizens, and they start to open up their big fat wallets, and they start to sponsor these games. They're hiring gladiators, and they're purchasing criminals, and they're getting animals, and they're bringing them all to Carthage. And of course, the scene of these things coming in, and the kids getting excited as they see real life leopards in a cage being strolled in through the streets to the arena, and the anticipation of the the city as this great holiday is going to begin. They've seen this before. This is Roman custom. This is normal. Think for us, football on Thanksgiving. This is just another event on another holiday. They know what to expect. They know that as they, as they come toward the arena, it's going to be crowded. Hundreds and thousands of people packing in. The gateways will have lines. They will spell new and um, exotic foods as they're being cooked in the arena. And they're going to hear the sound of, of people cheering and the buzz of excitement. They're going to hear steel clashing on steel. They're going to hear human voices screaming in agony. They may even hear the roar of a lion or another beast. They know what they're coming to. And they know that as they enter the arena, they're going to see an interesting infrastructure from top down. They're going to see in the most prominent places, visible to everybody, the rich, the ones who have sponsored this event, with the governor of the city of Carthage himself right there in all his pomp and glory. 
And then they're going to see the commoners elsewhere in the lesser desired places. And at the very bottom of this whole structure is going to be the lowest of the low. Gladiators, criminals, and animals. They know that this arena is a microcosm. It's a little model of the structure within the world empire at large. Think of a pyramid where you have Caesar at the top. And everyone supports him. He uses the majority of the people, 90% of the world populace, is living day to day, paycheck to paycheck, to sponsor his glorious kingdom. And only 3% have enough money to make other things happen. He keeps his friends very small and very wealthy. This is how you keep power. And that's the structure of the world, and the arena is just a little small model of the same structure. Watching individual criminals die as an example, and people pleading for their life to remind everyone else who really has power of life and death. It's Caesar, and then those he appoints. But today, May 7th, 203 AD, is a different day. They don't know this yet. But as they come into the arena, they're not going to see the ordinary criminals crying out for their lives, cowered, cowering in front of beasts and other animals, dying ruthlessly at the mercy of other warriors. They're not going to see that today. Because today, there are two Christians in the arena, Perpetua and Felicitas. Now, Perpetua is a high-born woman of a family of means, Yet, she committed the crime of converting to Christianity when the emperor decided no more conversions to new religions. She became a Christian. She is now in the arena. She has left behind a newborn infant. Felicitas is a slave. She too became a Christian, and likely it was her master who ratted her out to the authorities. So these are two young converts, one high-born, one low-born. Felicitas was pregnant while in prison, leading up to the games. And she was afraid that she would not be able to go into the arena because the Roman authorities, as ruthless as they are, had as much compassion that a pregnant woman shouldn't be in the arena. But Felicitas was upset. She wanted to die with Perpetua. Did not want to see her go alone. And so they prayed, and they prayed, and the church family over outside of Carthage prayed for them. They were visited. They shared communion together while they waited for the event to happen. Remember, it wasn't against the law to be a Christian, just to be a new convert. So the other Christians are fine, but these two were converts. So they're in jail. So they would come, they would share communion, they would pray, and Felicitas's baby was born a whole month early, just a few days before the event, and she was allowed into the arena. Now, of course, the baby was adopted by the church, by a family in the church. But as they go into the arena, as they prayed and they prepared, the Christians decided that they need to face death courageously. They need to go before the crowds with their heads high and their chests up, not looking like they're coming to their doom, but like they're ready to meet their own Lord, the true Lord, not Caesar, but the King of Kings, Jesus. And they looked at the crowds almost defiantly, the record says, and they walked bravely forward. And when given a final chance to recant their beliefs, they said, Psh, you condemn us, God will condemn you. We're good. 
And with that, they unleashed a wild bull. And after what has been recorded as a very gory scene, both women were thrown by the bull. And then, when Perpetua was able to get up and come to her senses, the highborn Perpetua, she looked for Felicitas, the slave, and ran toward her and picked her up, and there they held each other. And the crowd began to chant to give them a more merciful death because they were touched by what they were seeing. And so they put the bulls away. They bring out soldiers with swords to put them to death more honorably with the sword. And the record says that as Perpetuous was there, um, she turns to Felicitas and gives her what the early church called the kiss of peace. It was a kiss to show that we're in fellowship and that we're in peace with one another. She gives the highborn Perpetua, gives the slave Felicitas the kiss of peace. And then she directs the sword from the soldier to her own throat. And the record, the chronicler says, as if the soldier would not be able to kill her unless she willed it. So it's touching for us in one way, because every time we hear martyr stories, we are, I can't do that. That's amazing. That's courageous of them. But this is also touching in a very significant way. Because in an empire where everybody knows where they're at on the social ladder, vertically, you got the power people up here and everybody else and slaves way at the bottom. The, the Romans witnessed two people who lived in an alternate kingdom, two people who lived in an alternate reality, who refused to succumb to the hierarchical structures that humans have made in the empire of Rome. And instead of saying, I'm a highborn, you're a lowborn, these two Christian women were even in death, when you can't think of how shall I act, but the pressure causes you to reflexively act in, an, in a habitual way, these two women show the world that Christianity was a different world where people were treated as equals, where there is no highborn and lowborn, but they're simply sisters. And in a world that is power, uh, that, that's, that's trying to protect its vertical relationship, the church was threatening there in an unsuspecting place and saying, no, the real world is horizontal. This is subversive, dangerous, and undermining to an empire that needs power. And there, the, the thousands of witnesses were shaken by the fact that the world doesn't have to be the way that it is. But we have to ask ourselves, how did these two women behave in that way under that kind of pressure? What was the church of those early years like in order to produce people that instinctively and reflexively and habitually recognize that all are one in Christ? That as Paul said, there's neither, there's no more race. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no more gender in a sense, nor male nor female. In the, and there's, there's no more social class, slave or free, but that all are baptized into one Christ. What did the early church do? This will surprise you. Now, before we go forward, I need to say that one of the greatest dangers to the church today, 
is not atheism. I hear a lot of talk and a lot of concern and a lot of angst about atheism. And we gotta inoculate people against it. And we gotta argue against them. We gotta, we gotta reason our faith out a lot more strongly. We gotta have the arguments in place. We gotta have our champions go and fight for us. And, and those things have a place. But I wonder if we're emphasizing the wrong thing. I'm not as concerned with atheism as I am with Americanism. Now, what I mean by that is, look, I love my country. I know you guys do too. I am not saying America is the problem. But Americanism, the ideas, the ideas, the ideals, and the values that we as Americans teach each other is the most corrosive thing to the church today. Americanism promotes materialism. That stuff is what matters, not only in possessing it, but that all that matters is what you can see, that you can test material things. And if it's not material and you can't test it and you can't see it, then it doesn't matter. Materialism, individualism, I am the one person that matters to me. I don't need other people, and needing other people is a sign of weakness, So I need to pursue my personal dreams. I need to get my own personal career, make my own money, have my own stuff and my own things and have a gate and keep my, uh, keep the less desirables away from me. Materialism, individualism, just to start naming a few. Americanism is the greatest danger to our church today. How do we protect ourselves? The early church had a good way. They lived in the Roman Empire where conforming to their values was a matter of life and death, not just how much money can I make. So let's now look at Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 26, just this short parable. Mark 4.26, Jesus speaking, says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. There's a process. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This parable has been so memorable to me for so long. And I think it's starting to make sense as I read this, dwell on it, and look at America and its church at large, and consider how the earliest years of the church lived and operated, I think I'm starting to see why. Here Jesus is giving us this interesting parable about a guy who throws seed, and it's almost like a no-brainer, but it has to be said. He scatters the seed, he goes to bed day after day, and he notices that it's starting to grow. There's this process. First you see the little green shoot, and then there's a little bud on the end of something, and then there's a little, it's either a grain or a fruit, something begins to form, and then finally you get to cut it down and eat it. 
But this line, it grows and he knows not how. I love that. You throw the seed out there, you don't need to know anything about how it grows. Is It's going to grow. The earth produces by itself. This is how the early church saw growth in the church. They did not believe that they had to be the heroic cowboys of the West who pulled on their boots and were gunslingers and were better and faster than anybody else and they could ride into the sunset and they can convert entire villages and cities. This was not the early church's method. In fact, the early church is surprising because in the first 300 years, it grew and it grew and it grew to the point that when an emperor, we'll talk about this next time, when an emperor becomes Christian, his name's Constantine, the entire empire embraces Christianity as its chief religion. And we're talking about an empire that is predominantly pagan for hundreds of years. And in the turn of a conversion of one leader, the entire world embraces this Christianity as its primary religion. How does that happen? That doesn't just happen overnight. Christianity was steadily growing and putting things in place so that when a leader came up, the world was ready. There were things in place. There were churches. There were fellowships. How does that happen? It's amazing and it's mysterious because, consider, a pagan society had no tolerance for Christianity. Christians were called atheists. Christians were called atheists because they denied the gods of Rome. The gods who were the ones behind everything. The gods who were the ones that gave Caesar his power. The gods who were to be revered and feared. And if you didn't please them, then the little areas of the empire they kept together, they would let it fall apart. They would let disease come in, barbarians come in, famine come in. The Christians denied these gods. The Christians were atheists. Worse, the Christians were antisocial, known for hating the lifestyle of Rome. They were actually called by some Romans haters of humankind because they refused to go wherever the little pagan ceremonies were going. They were seen as people that didn't like people. We're not going over there. They were called, um, they, they accused their church services of being brothels and that uh, they were cannibals and that they snatched babies off the streets and baked them in bread and ate it because all they heard was they ate the body of some Christ. And they were known to frequently snatch babies off streets because Romans would discard unwanted or deformed babies just in the streets. And the church was well known for going around and snatching them and raising them up. But the rumors were vicious against Christians. They were misunderstood. Furthermore, to become a Christian came at great risk. You could lose your job. You could be fined by the governors of the city. You could, although it didn't happen as much as we think, you could be put to death. You could go, be sent to go work in the coal mines or some other horrible task. A lot of negative awaited a Christian, not a lot of positive. So what's the incentive to convert? There's none, apparently. Further, and this is the most surprising part, the church as far as we know from the writings we have and the sermons we have recorded and the records of what they did in their services, they made zero organized effort to convert people. 
wait. Okay, you're telling me in a world where converting cost you everything and they made no effort to convert people that the church still grew? It did. They had no missionary programs. They had no official evangelists. No actually official missionaries. They didn't have a board that sponsored them. They had no conferences, no schools, and yet they grew. They had no tracts to hand out. There is no existing writing that said, this is how to share Christ with a pagan Roman. There is nothing in existence in the writings that tell the bishops and the pastors how to train new converts. We have these writings, what they trained them, what they taught them. And in all of the things detailed, not once is there a mention of, now go share with your neighbors and your families. In fact, the early church seemed to have the opposite approach to evangelism. Rather than going out, and uh, they, they actually tried not to share. There are records where they reprimanded some women for trying to share Christ with people they were working with. There are records where they put one of the deacons at the front of the door as a sort of bouncer to make sure that the people coming into the church were indeed confirmed and baptized believers. They did not allow unknown people in their doors. And they kept their services a secret and did not allow them to talk about it openly. That's how the Romans came up with all these vicious rumors about what they were doing behind closed doors. They actually discouraged the sharing of Christ with other people. And yet they grew. This is the mind-boggling part about the early church. And there has to be something divine happening in it for this to happen. So now you're wondering, what on earth did they do with their time and their lives if they made no active effort to convert? Now, Let me pause. We're not going to walk out of this and say, stop evangelizing. That's not the message. We need to consider one thing here. They went through series of freedom and series of persecutions. They felt it at times necessary to protect their message, lest they could be completely devastated. Protect their doors so that no one came in to spy on them. Yes, that's true. They didn't have freedom of speech like we have. So I'm not going to have you guys leave and say, if you're evangelizing, you're like in error from the original church. But what we do need to realize is that even without evangelism, they did something that worked. We have evangelism, and we're not working out so well. They were growing, we're shrinking. So what did they have that we don't? What did they do that we don't? That's our question. So... Let me give you guys a little bit of a story about what would happen. You become a Christian. We're going to save what you go through for this moment. You are not encouraged to go share your faith with other people. But you are encouraged to let them know you're a Christian. You live next to people who aren't Christians. You might even work next to people who aren't Christians. You are encouraged to befriend them. Just befriend them. Get to know them. Sooner or later, this non-Christian is going to be interested about your way of life and ask you questions. You are then encouraged to bring them to church. That's it. So you bring them to church. Now, we say, bring somebody to church. And we mean, let them sit in that little chair right next to you while they hear some amazing message and music. 
and maybe we'll give an altar call and we'll get saved. That's what you think when you hear to bring them to church, not what they had in mind. So they would bring someone to church. So now you, the Christian, bringing this unbeliever, you're now considered what they would call a sponsor. You're a sponsor. You're sponsoring this person's growth from day one to the very end. So you are responsible to watch over them, to bring them to the church. You bring them into the doors, and there are the elders of the church. And right then, they sit you down, and they begin to ask this unbeliever a series of loaded questions. Do you lie? Do you take interest? Uh, do you take bribes? Uh, how's your marital life? How's your sex life? Have you visited brothels? Like a lot of really intense questions to kind of get a sense of where are they at in life? What are their behaviors? What's the habit that they live by? And when they deem that his answers are sufficient enough, they would take him on. He would now be a candidate or as a lot of historical records refer to as a catechumen. But I think candidate's a little easier for you to remember. He becomes a candidate. He now goes through a long series of events. Now, if he's not worthy, they would turn him away and say, you know what, maybe check us out a little bit later. So right then, there's a screening process. Okay, let's follow our candidate now. He joins. He's been befriended by a Christian. He got interested. He was brought in. He's been interrogated. Now he moves into the teaching mode. He's going to be taught for a very long time. How long? This next stage lasted up to three years and often was three years. So he would go through a series of teachings with his sponsor, with the leadership of the church, and they would teach him how Christians behave. Okay, so you see down the street corner over there, that shop has an idol. We don't do idolatry. Or Romans think that going to the brothels is okay. As long as it's done there, it's all clean, and you're not considered in an adulterous relationship. Christians think this way. Teaching them how Christians behave. Now, in these three years, that's all they do. Training them to think differently. Because the early Christians believed that you have your culture so ingrained in you that sometimes you're not even aware that it's your culture. And it becomes your reflexive, habitual reaction to things. And they believe that paganism ran deep in a person. That Rome had it everywhere. And they needed at least three years to get that out of this person. So they would, for three years, they would take them along to visiting um, people that are sick, to helping poor people, just enacting different things, getting them to see what Christians do, how Christians think, changing their behavior. So when the, when the candidate thinks that he's finally up to par... He will then go through another series of examinations in which the, the church leadership would then ask him a series of questions and trying to figure out where he is, and he would be applying for baptism. I want to be baptized. I want to be join this Christian thing. So this, this three-year period is like a big trial to see, can you start acting like a Christian before we even bring you into being considered to be baptized? Really crazy. So... If they feel like, after three years, he's finally beginning to develop reflexes and habits that are like Christ, he then moves into stage three. So, stage one, he's been befriended by a Christian. Stage two, he has been given a new set of behavior. Stage three, this is a shocking thing, he's finally taught what to believe. 
He was not told how he's supposed to believe until his behavior was in line. Because the early Christians believed that you would not really grasp or understand the doctrines of Christianity if you couldn't get your life in order for the doctrines. And so now they begin to explain to him things like incarnation, the cross, resurrection. They begin to learn the doctrines. Now this only lasted a series of months. And then, whenever Easter was on the calendar, when that came up, it was time for them to move to stage four. And they would go through one more examination period. They're trying to get to stage four, where they're going to be baptized. And they come in one more time. This time, the... the, the um, pastor, they called him bishops, the pastor who's in charge of a larger area of churches would be present and he would personally examine your life. And members of the church would all fill the room because you'd have more than one person applying for baptism. So they would all come together and they would listen to these hearings to see how they're living. And then you, the people who are coming in to watch this, you would be giving your own testimony. Yes, this person's living uprighteously. Yes, this person has no flaws. He's above reproach. Or no, I saw him do this. He's not ready. And so if you passed this examination, then they would get you ready. So this examination happened a few weeks before Easter. Um, then you would uh, enter into a few weeks of fasting where you're encouraged not to eat. You're encouraged to abstain from sex, even if you're married. And you are encouraged to not go to any forms of entertainment. You are basically going to deprive yourself as much as you can for a few weeks. And then when that was done, you would then come back to the bishop and he would give you the creed. Now you would actually learn the, the creed that the Christians recited to keep themselves from false doctrines. And they would learn the creed with their sponsor for the whole week. This is the week of Easter now. They're learning this creed. They're reciting it. Then comes Saturday night, the night before Easter. And this is the climax of a long and tedious journey. The church would gather Saturday night, late at night, midnight. And there... They would hear a series of messages and encouragement... Then they would sing Psalm 42 as they made their way toward the water. Sometimes it it depended on the area. It could have been a pool of water, like in some churches, or it could have been a public river, lake, pond, whatever. They moved their way toward the water, singing Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. They get to the water. The candidates would then uh, take off their clothes, totally naked, The bishop would be in the water. He would call their name. They would come into the water. He would then baptize them with the familiar phrase, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they'd dunk them three times, for the Father, for the Son, for the Holy Spirit. And then they would come out. And on the other side were the already baptized. And they would have a white robe and put them on this candidate who's gone on this long three-year process. And he would go out in the robe, and one after another is baptized, and all these white-robed, now new, confirmed Christians would be going with the other Christians who had been going with this, them on this journey for a long time. And they go back to the church, and there they would give them, before they take their first communion, which on Easter would have been a huge feast, before they get to partake in the feast, they would give them a cup of milk and some honey. Congratulations, you've made it to the promised land. 
their long journey through the wilderness of learning how to think like Christ, how to retrain themselves not to be Romans, but to be Christians, not the kingdom of Caesar, but the kingdom of Christ, and then to learn the beliefs and to learn the creeds, and then finally, passing all the examinations and the interrogations and going through the water, you've made it. You've made it. And then they would take their first communion with the church as they had the feast on Easter, Easter morning. Can you imagine going through that process? Can you imagine being that new convert? How long would you go? How long would you stick with it? Can you imagine being the sponsor of that convert? How long would you stay with them? How patient would you be as they're going through that process? This is how the early church converted people. When the person asked to join the church, then they would only let him in through a long series of tests of at least three years. You would think the early church didn't want people to believe in God. And in a sense, well, they did. They did want people to believe in God. But in a sense, yes, they wanted it to be hard. They wanted it to be difficult because they believed that this person, when they've gone through this and actually changed themselves from the inside out, thinking differently, having different habits, and reflexively behaving differently in different scenarios, so that they actually can be like Perpetua and Felicitas when facing their death, they instinctively give the kiss of peace, which no Roman would do highborn to a slave. No Roman would ever give a slave the kiss of peace. They could look at death bravely and courageously. This is how the early church saw things. They were not into being attractional. Like, hey, we got really awesome music. We've got open doors for you. We've got a great dinner at five o'clock. Um, you know, we've got all this stuff happening. Hey, we're doing all this social justice stuff. We sponsor these kids in Africa. We go do these mission trips, and we're helping our, our city in this way and all these things that make us look good so that the common person's like, I want to join. I want to be part of that. That looks really good. Like, that's how America does things, attract people to us. The early church did not believe that unbelievers would be attracted to their worship. They didn't allow them in their worship. They believed that early, uh, that, that the pagans would be attracted to the Christian himself. That something about his way of life, something about his thinking, his reflexes, his habits, the way they treat one another, the way they see people of all race and gender and class, that that would bring people to them. Because that in time, Romans would grow very tired of their religions and of their way of life. They grow very tired of the power hungry in their midst who always do nice things just so that they can get praise and applause. They'd be very tired of seeing the same rituals in their temples over and over where only the priests did things because you had to do absolutely perfect or the angry gods would zap you and not give you favor. They were so tired of seeing these things all the time, wondering if it ever changed anything, if anything ever happened, that one day they would grab to an alternative story, an alternative world, an alternative kingdom, if only it presented itself to them. And it did. In those few but precious Christians, when they met them, because the Christians befriended them, they would be intrigued not by what they believed. Remember, they didn't share what they believed. They were not intrigued by the Christian message. They were intrigued by the Christian person. And that's what brought them on the journey. Why were they so rigorous about who can come into the church? Because they believed that if we just let people come on in as they are, 
we are going to lose the most precious witness we have in the world. The person Christ has made us. See, in America, we like to just throw God on people's lives like water. Just, you have God now. Keep doing what you do. Here's a band-aid. We think that God is someone to add. Or that the beliefs are just something we kind of cram into our head somehow. Just fit it in there. Now we're good. That if I say a sinner's prayer, that'll get me into heaven. But the early church didn't care for that. They cared that there was a way of life that Jesus called us into. And we're going to make people live that for real. So we read this parable in Mark 4 about throwing seed. Seed takes a long time. You don't throw down a seed and there you have a tree or there you have some crops. You got to throw it down. You have to wait. The farmer goes to sleep. He wakes up. He goes to sleep. He wakes up. There's this monotony. This nothing exciting is happening, yet it's growing. The farmer doesn't have to go out there and start shouting at the seeds. He doesn't have to start reading them bedtime stories. He doesn't have to start playing them little diddlies on their violin. He doesn't have to start (laughs) massaging them. The farmer doesn't do anything. Once he's prepped the ground and put the seed in there, the earth produces on its own. This is a patience. This is a patience that Americans do not understand. Now, you know, I'm a pastor, right? And um, my gift is in, like, the word and teaching it. Uh, it's not, like, in the administrative stuff, um, which, you know, I'm learning. But um, that's, that's, like, not f- for me. And, and the frustrating thing for me is as I watch and look around and see, oh, there's a successful church. What do they do? And I realize, oh, well, they, they're literally, they're, they're practically have a CEO running their church with a business degree and these business strategies. And they're basically reading all these corporate America books and applying them to their leadership and to their structures. And basically, the church has become a product we open the doors to and hope you want to buy it. That's a good product, but it's a product. And we just kind of put it out there for sale. It's like Jesus on a billboard. Take your pick, Jesus or Buddha. or It's just like we're kind of throwing out a product for people. Just like, yeah, choose. And we do it. We go to this church. We go to that church. We taste this. We taste that. We like this product. We don't like that product. This is what we've done. And, and so as, I'm like try, as I learn, I, I look around and I'm very discouraged. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that. But I read this parable? Wow, you mean it doesn't require my knowledge. It doesn't require my skills, my strategies, my expert team. It doesn't require that stuff. It just requires that the Spirit of God is working. This is God's work. The Holy Spirit birthed the church. Now, I have kids, so I know something about this. Not the birthing part. I watched it, though. (laughs) The one who births the kids is the one who raises the kids. Yet what we do in America is we're like, yeah, 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 God will make you a Christian and all, but then we're going to take over. We're going to get the church. We have this growth strategy. We have this plan. We have this desire to build an empire. If we're begun in the Spirit, didn't Paul warn us, don't finish in the flesh in your strength? 
birthed by the Spirit, raised and led by the Spirit. The early church did that literally. So much so that they, they were not running around worried or in a hurry or stressing out. If only we could get a better emperor on the throne, they would have loved our presidents. Uh, if They didn't do that. That wasn't their way. What was happening in the early church was very slow, but very effective. They were patient because this farmer is patient. Because Jesus says the kingdom of God is grown, not in our manipulation, in our power, in our creativity, in our cleverness. It's grown in our patience. Now, patience isn't just your ability to be calm in line at the grocery store when all you wanted was a pack of gum. Now they, now, oh, they're writing a check. Oh, great. Like, okay, that, that is not what we're talking about. Now, that's good. Yeah, great. Patience is a virtue and all. The kind of patience we're talking about is how do we achieve our goals? I see a lot of Christians in a hurry. Have you talked to five people this week? God's more patient than demanding your quota. We're not cops writing tickets. Sorry, Frank. (laughs) We're also not trying to be, I see a lot of people trying to be impressive. Oh, the church is a fantastic thing. It's the best thing you've seen yet. There's a lot of fantastic things in America. It's pretty hard competition. They just were. They trusted that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. He's the king. He's on the throne. He will make his church what he wants it in his time. He's not asking us to instill our human cleverness and wisdom. He's asking us to be faithful to his processes. Keep throwing the seed and let it grow as it's supposed to grow. Then the harvest will come when it comes. So there's this image uh, that Jesus uses also in two other parables. It says that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who puts yeast in the dough. That was a short one. Then he tells the Pharisees, who are squabbling that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, he tells them, look, if you put new wine in old wineskins, the skins will burst, because when they ferment, when the wine ferments, the skins won't be able to stretch, so they, and the wine will be ruined. You put new wine that you want to ferment in new skins so that the fermentation process can expand. Wine and leaven go through a process known as fermentation. Jesus told us that this is how it works. Now, fermentation, I know we don't all brew our own beer or anything like that. <laughs> That'd be really weird here. So we may not be familiar with fermentation, but I read that fermentation <laughs> is a very unimpressive event. It's also something that you don't actually do. You put the ingredients there and you just let it go. Fermentation happens on its own. And it's very unimpressive. 
just a bubble here, a bubble there. You're like, wow, nothing's happening. But in time, in time, fermentation changes the entire thing. Sourdough bread goes through fermentation, right? Fermentation changes the taste. Um, Jesus was saying, look, the church is going to be like new wine. It's going to go through a process of expansion and fermentation, but it's not going to be because we're great. Yeast in the dough of bread, it's going to expand it. But all you do is put it there. It does its own thing. Brothers and sisters, the church is meant to be a place for fermentation. That people could get filled with the Holy Spirit. That we just give space. And we go through the patient, long, enduring process of helping each other change our way of thinking so that we're no longer Americans. And I don't mean burning our flag. Don't go down. You're taking me too literal. I mean, in the way we think and behave, that we're no longer Americans thinking that we're self-entitled individuals who get stuff, who love to honor the ones who are self-made. We're not Americans. We're kingdom of godders. We belong to an alternate kingdom. And yet we try to, in America, as Americans, behaving with the same values and social codes and thinking and reflexes and responses, we try to just add God to that. It's in these walls. And suddenly, that's the kingdom of God. Mm -mm. Or we try to get the church to grow by using American tactics and American strategies. Over here, now we're going to get it to grow. Mm-mm. The early church shocked the world because they were different than Rome. Very different. Felicitas and Perpetua in the arena weren't begging for their life. They weren't thinking of themselves, trying to survive for themselves. They were unified in death because they were unified in life. So, where do we go with this? We need to slow down. We need to stop bringing the industrial revolution into evangelism. People are not things to spit out of our assembly line. Great, baptize another one. Great, more got saved. Great, more are coming. That misses everything. We need to practice the way of patience in which we are willing to take one person on at a time. And we need to see them through. Heaven help us because we're really good at saving people. Make a decision for Jesus. But we're not very good at giving them a direction of Jesus. We bring them in. They say the prayer. We we tell them what to believe and then we leave it there. It's like, well... And that's America, individualism. You kind of behave how you want. You shouldn't do these things, but, you know, you're saved by grace anyways. We have to rethink our evangelism. 
We have to rethink what we're doing with people. Are we making disciples? Or are we spitting out so-called believers? Now, I don't know how we do that yet, but there's a lot of people thinking and praying and listening, and you might. We have to begin. One of the ways that we can be different than our American contemporaries is that we are patient people and that we believe God is doing stuff whether we see it or not in his time, in his way. Americans aren't patient. We are not patient. The economy takes a little slip. we got to immediately manipulate laws and stimulate the economy by throwing out money and bonds and stuff. We're not, we, don't believe in pro, we don't let processes take their course. We want to impe- impeach presidents because within 100 days they don't please us. Like, we're not patient people. Man, God is. And please, if you're sitting here tonight and you felt the burden of you're not good enough or you haven't done enough, God is the patient one who taught the early believers to be patient. We, it's America that's eating at your conscience telling you're not good enough. It's America that said you haven't done enough or given enough or witnessed to enough people. Have you even led a single person to Christ? You're worthless. That is not God talking. That is the God of America talking. I believe in the risen Christ, not the God who is limited to the American ideals. And I want believers to feel the patience of God along the way. Man, you've been a Christian for five years and you still haven't given up fill in the blank? I don't think God's the one tapping his foot saying, come on, get with it. I think God's the one who patiently understands how long it takes to uproot a culture out of a person and put a new kingdom within them. God put the seed in your heart and he's watching it grow. He's making it grow. You don't know how this happens and you don't have to understand how it happens. You don't have to understand everything you read in the Bible. You don't have to understand every reason why you're praying it every day. Like You don't have to understand those things. We just have to put in place the patient process of just praying, of reading scripture, of being together in fellowship, of reaching out to each other. We just do this continually. You will see people want to be Christians. And they won't want to be Christians because we out-argue every other philosophy. We're missing the point. And there's a lot of stress and strain. Like You, you can't even be a pastor of most churches unless you've gone through seminary. The early church would have laughed. Great, we're glad you know that, but how do you behave? How's that belief working for you? How's that belief working for your congregation? Because it's not producing Christ-like reflexes in the midst of a pagan culture. Yes, let's just call America that too. Then it doesn't matter what you believe. So, brothers, sisters, feel not the pressure and the tyranny of the God that America is speaking into you, of the American churches that put that pressure on you. God has all the time in the world. We th- we're 2,000 years of church history is amazing to me. Like 2,000 years of things been going on, and God's like, oh, has it already been that long? <laughs> He has seen so many people for so many years. Nothing you do surprises him. Nothing you do shocks. I've never seen a Christian struggle with that. How dare, how, you shouldn't even go to church this week. (laughs) Nothing surprises him. That's why I'm so excited that we get a look at some of our history. So, I can keep going on and on because this is, in my being, I guess, but let's bring the worship team up.
And to just finish the parable and the idea of patience, you can do no better than going outside of our own doors and looking at the forest around you. There are towering trees of up to 200 years old. How did it get there? Not by hurrying up, that's for sure. There's a process, a patience of nature. That's why I think Paul says in Romans, look, God is revealed in creation. God just lets season after season go and just little microscopic growth. But in time, it makes a difference. So your life, you may only befriend one unbeliever, and you might do your best with them. Look, if we all did that, and the next generation, the next generation, in the 300 years the early church got to evangelizing the world, you'd see that happen. We need patience. So be patient with yourself. Be patient with your neighbor. And just let God be God.